Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Last episode, we learned about Stewart's run for office in San Leandro, a last-ditch effort to wrest some control over his life away from the various authority figures he suspected of hounding him for so many years. This effort was, of course, unsuccessful. Stewart was on the brink. Nothing left to do except for him to get a little nudge. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Garevich, and this is The Sausage King, Episode 5. I'm the one you're looking for. It started out seemingly as a typical day in San Leandro on June 21st, 2000. It was a warm Wednesday, the sun was shining, and it was peaceful in the city's downtown area. Rick Cahill remembers it well, even 20 years later, as being a particularly slow day. Rick was a San Leandro police officer on bicycle patrol. Nothing much was happening, so he was relaxing at the Safeway grocery store downtown and shooting the shit with the store's employees. Then... The call came in after about 4 p.m. that afternoon of shots fired. The grocery store was only about a quarter of a mile away from the Santos Linguisa factory, so Rick rode over immediately. He arrived maybe three or four minutes later at the scene. What did you see when you first got there? Nothing. (laughs) When I was coming down the street and once I made the corner, I could see the front of his building. Rick means Stuart. He could see Stuart's factory. Rick actually knew Stuart fairly well at that point. Not exactly friends, but they moved in the same circles in San Leandro. So he didn't think much of it when he first arrived. Everything was calm and quiet by the time he got there. All of the mayhem had already happened. Um, I was just pedaling that direction. You know, they put it out as a shots fired call. Um, As I was riding down the street, Um, The only thing that even made me uh, aware of the situation that it was it was a legit call was the fact that we were getting multiple calls according to dispatch. But I wasn't hearing anything, wasn't seeing anything. Nothing was going on in front of the the business. And Mm -hmm. like I said, I just approached and rode up on my bicycle. Uh, Like I said, nothing had nothing was nothing was seen or heard. Who who did you first encounter when you arrived? Well, when I came down the street, um, I was looking around. Like I said, nothing was visible. No, nothing was going on. Um, there was uh, three people on the porch across the street from the driveway or the business located on the uh, west side of the 
west side of the the street. So mm-hmm. I asked them, and radio was putting out a details of the call. You know, they put it out as a uh, an Italian male, if I cor- uh, uh, if I remember correctly, wearing a a white shirt and black pants. And then when I uh, got to the front of the business, I looked at uh, um, the people across the street and I asked them if they'd seen anybody come running by there in the last couple of minutes because they said the suspect was running, if I remember correctly. And uh, they didn't respond to me. I think they didn't understand me. um, Like, uh, and they just had this blank look on their face. So then, since I didn't get an answer from them, I went up to the next corner of uh, Williams and Washington, looked uh, east and west, didn't see anybody down there. And I was thinking, I'm going, you know what? These people had to have seen something. So Mm -hmm. I rode back to them to ask them more questions. And when I turned around and got to them, I looked to the right and saw Stuart Alexander coming up the, uh, the driveway. Oh, okay. So Stuart was walking towards you? Yeah, he was walking up the driveway. And at that point, you had no idea that he was involved? No, I didn't know what was going on because all we got was getting phone calls from uh, surrounding residents. But um, I'm sure you probably have to understand the fact that when we get calls into the police department like that, you know, they go into a, uh, they go into dispatch and somebody's typing the, typing in the uh, details of the call, then it goes to the other side of the computer where the dispatch is actually putting out the details of the call that the, the first dispatcher is typing into it. So there's mm-hmm. there's a delay. But you, you and Stuart have known each other for a while. Were you surprised to see him walking towards you? Uh, no, because uh, like I said, I didn't know he had done anything. <laughs> and so once I saw him, I wasn't even paying attention that he actually matched the description of the person that they put out. He was wearing the white shirt and he was wearing the uh, black pants or jeans, if I remember right. And uh, I just saw Stuart, so I wasn't too concerned about it. So once I saw him, I went over and approached him. And uh, that's when I asked him, I said, hey, you see anybody coming? Uh, did you see anybody running by here in the last couple of minutes? And, he, and that's when he responded to me, I'm the one you're looking for. Just minutes earlier, Stuart had shot and killed three people in his factory, the culmination of months of back and forth between him and the USDA's compliance officers. There were several issues at play, but the main problem was that Stuart was refusing to smoke his sausage at a temperature of at least 144 degrees. This temperature became a new requirement to kill trichinosis, as we discussed in episode three. Stuart had refused because that temperature shriveled up the sausage, and he didn't think a change was needed, as his factory had been doing it the same way for nearly 80 years. The inspectors had arrived earlier that week, on Monday the 19th, to speak with Stuart. According to the transcript from Stuart's trial, the official reason, put forth by compliance officer Gene Hillary, was that they were there to do a follow-up investigation concerning processing without inspection. Stewart argued with Gene Hillary, saying that the USDA had withdrawn its inspection, which they had not. Gene asserted that the factory was in violation of both federal and state laws. The conversation got heated. Stewart reportedly raised his voice and got close to Gene's face. Another inspector, Earl Willis with the California Department of Food and Agriculture, took the opportunity to interject and introduce himself. 
The inspectors asked for a tour of the facility, which Stewart provided. Stewart showed them around and gave a thorough explanation of his process, including how he marinates the meat in wine and vinegar for a few days, mixed with garlic and other elements. They also stopped by the old-fashioned smokehouse that Stewart used to smoke the linguisa. At the end of the tour, they returned to the retail area, and Earl Willis advised Stewart on state regulations he was in violation of and a potential solution. Become his own inspector. This is a recreation of court testimony from the transcripts of Stewart's trial. The first voice you hear is Stewart's defense attorney, Michael Ogle, questioning the lone survivor, Earl Willis, on the stand. I told him that in order for him to operate under the state regulation, that he would be licensed and trained by the state of California as an inspector of his shop. And uh, we would, you know, come in once a week or whatever to supervise the work that's going on. Yes. Okay. And did you let him know that basically he would be limited in what he could do if he was processing under state inspection only? Yes. And basically, he could process and sell only to walk-up customers? That's correct. And Stewart said he didn't want to do that? That would be correct. He explained his business was mainly wholesale retail? That would be correct. Now, I have to confess, I'm not really familiar with the term wholesale retail. Could you please explain to us what that means? Well, wholesale. You're selling to restaurants, pizza parlors, grocery stores, and that particular type of business. Okay. And ship across state lines. But wholesale retail, what does that mean? Wholesale means that you can sell to these institutions. Wholesale retail. That's the wholesale retail sale. Okay. You have product that goes into retail. Okay, thank you. You explained to Mr. Alexander the violations that you observed, correct? That is correct. And you observed that the product that was being processed had not yet been smoked. That is correct. It was not a dry product, was it? No, it was not. It was not a cooked product, was it? No, it was not. But you determined that it was unlawfully processed because it was cured. He used vinegar in his product, yes. And he also was, you know, product final phase work to be smoked. Okay, but it was a cured product as far as you were concerned. Yes, On the state level, this meant Stewart could be issued a notice of violation, the equivalent of a slap on the wrist. This was separate from the conflict Stewart had been having with the USDA inspectors. Willis had never met Stewart until that Monday on June 19th. Gene Hillary's relationship with Stewart had gone on for much longer, at one point with him kicking her out of his factory during a previous inspection. When they left that day, it wasn't clear at first if they would be returning to the factory again. They both needed to consult with their supervisors how best to proceed. Earl, the state inspector, discussed it with a colleague of his that had dealt with Stewart before, Bill Shaleen. They agreed that the state side of things should take a backseat to the federal line of conflict. But ultimately, their supervisor asked the two of them to return to the factory on Wednesday, June 21st, with Gene Hillary and another federal inspector, Tom Quadros. Although it was clear to Earl and Gene at that point that Stewart was a hothead, they had no idea what to expect when they arrived that afternoon to speak with Stewart. Gene's intention was to issue a notice of violation after discovering that Stewart was shipping his product across state lines, a federal violation. And then she and Tom planned to inspect Stewart's products for other issues. When they arrived that afternoon, neither Stewart nor his recently hired secretary, Brooke Silverglide, were present. Three of them went inside. Tom Quadros waited outside for a police escort. The police presence had been advised after previous hostile interactions Gene Hillary had reported dealing with at the factory. 
A factory worker let the three inspectors look around the space while he worked. They looked around and took photos. By the time they finished, Stewart had still not arrived. Neither had the police. So the group loitered in the parking lot until at last, Stewart drove up in his truck. Tom Quadros again waited outside while the other three re-entered the factory. Almost immediately, Stewart started yelling at Gene. He was yelling in a demanding tone, right? Yes. Did he demand, what do you want? Yes. Why are you here now? Yes. Why are you harassing me? Yes. Why are you harassing my customers? That's correct. Why do you have my records? You have no right to them. That's correct. Why are you harassing my customers? You have no right. That's correct. How dare you? You don't have the right to my records. What are you doing harassing my customers? That's correct. In the face of this, Ms. Hillary maintained a firm attitude, correct? Correct. And she said she had not harassed his customers. That's correct. And she said she did have the right to his records. That's correct. And she said that's how she knew he was shipping across state lines. Yes. And Mr. Alexander asked her to prove that she had the right to his records. The actual proof, yes. And she handed him a copy of the... A photocopy of the Federal Meat Inspection Act. Yes, she did. And she even had it turned to a particular page? Yes. At some point, he came back out, right? Yes. And he had not calmed down, had he? No. He became more belligerent. Yes. Saying, you're harassing me. You're harassing my customers. Yes. I want you out of my plant. Yes. You were concerned for the safety of Miss Hillary. That's correct. In fact, you thought Mr. Alexander may have attacked her, but for your presence and Bill Shaling's presence. That's correct. Stewart took the copy and went into his office to file it away. At this point, Stewart refused to sign the notice of violation form. He retreated back into his office, slamming the door shut behind him. When he came back out, he screamed at them to get out of his plant, to get off his property. Gene responded that the inspectors wouldn't go into his office or any other part of the plant, but that they would wait in the common area for the police to arrive. Stewart had already called the police himself. He went back into his office and came out with a camera and took a bunch of pictures of the group. He'd gone back and forth to his office so much in such a short amount of time, Earl Willis remembers telling Gene Hillary that Stewart may have a gun on him. Despite that, and the squirrely look in Stewart's eyes, the inspectors were not about to leave. By then, Stewart's secretary, Brooke, a young woman of about 19, arrived. In an aside conversation, she told Stewart that the inspectors had no right to be there on his property, that they were trespassing. Her words only added fuel to the fire, as Earl said in his testimony. And, according to interviews with those involved in the case... She mentioned that Stewart could fire off a warning shot to scare the inspectors. She had no idea how much those words would come to haunt her. She declined to be interviewed for this podcast. The tension in the room was escalating quickly, and Earl increasingly felt like he was about to be ambushed. Jean turned to Earl and asked him to get a camera from Tom, who was still waiting outside for the police, because she wanted to take more pictures. Earl went outside, and Tom fatefully, offered to trade places with him. So that left Earl, outside, alone, waiting for the police when the following events took place. The whole tragedy was captured on videotape, on security cameras Stuart himself had installed and turned on for that moment. He walked out of his office for a final time and shot Gene, Bill, and Tom in rapid succession. I haven't seen the majority of the footage. I was told it was lost in a routine evidence purge at the courthouse a few years ago. 
But the defense attorney for the trial, Michael Ogle, was able to dig up the first 22 seconds for me from an ancient laptop of his. Even those first few moments are hard to watch. Stewart emerges, seems to shoot the ceiling, and then the three inspectors hit the ground as if trying to avoid the shots. Stewart proceeded to shoot all three and then left the building to run after Earl, who took off running as soon as he heard the shots. But Earl was a former high school track star and was able to lose Stewart down the road. So, Stewart returned to the factory, where at least one of the inspectors was still alive, moving slightly on the ground. He shot them all again, ensuring they were dead. Then, he walked out and found San Leandro police officer Rick Cahill. He just said, uh, yeah, I'm, that's all he said was, I'm the person you're looking for. And then my response was, what's going on? And basically, he didn't respond much. All he said was, I'm the one you're looking for. And he um, put his hands behind his back and said, I'll just, uh, he says, just take me to jail. I'll talk to my attorney there. So, like I said, I still didn't know what was going on because, like I said, I hadn't heard any shots fired. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen anything and then uh my sergeant who was uh he located the uh the uh the fourth uh meat inspector okay down the street and uh he contacted him who was hiding i think in the bushes somewhere down on thornton and uh when he saw the police car drive by he came out flagged down sergeant brahas and sergeant brahas started putting out some detail more details and basically said that Stuart Alexander's our shoot, shooter. Um, we need to find, we need to ascertain the welfare on three and uh, three employees. And once again, why it didn't none of this made sense to me was because nobody's mentioned anybody about federal or state meat inspectors being on site there. Rick cuffed Stuart, and someone else took him to jail. Very quickly, other law enforcement began to arrive, including a SWAT team. Well, the FBI showed up probably, they were there, I would say, fairly quickly um, within a, I would say within an hour. And I saw them canvassing the, uh, that street, Thornton, probably uh, looking for evidence, you know, probably, I'm, I'm assuming um, uh, shell casings. Rick was assigned to help cordon off the area outside the factory and keep onlookers at bay. He wasn't relieved from his post until about 15 hours later. He was first on the scene but he didn't find out until much later the depth of the situation or that the inspectors had called the police prior to the incident, asking for a civil standby. Civil standby. I don't know what they were, I don't know what their purpose was there for. Cause you know, like I said, he got shut down once before mm-hmm. and I don't know if they were there to issue him another citation or try to close him down or what. But the, like I said, they sent two meetings, uh, two state uh, employees and two federal employees. And usually when you go into and, uh, a situation like that, a lot of times somebody will call and they'll ask for a civil standby. They just want the police to be there while they conduct their business so they're safe. Okay. Why hadn't the civil standby arrived by the time they got there? Um, not sure. That's, uh, like I said, I don't know how long the call had been holding. I don't know. Um, like I said, I just know that they both had called and had requested the police. So um, sometimes stuff like that gets held for a little while because it's uh, not a priority, I'd say priority one call or an urgent call. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, we were getting real uh, that time of day. It's close to a uh, shift change. And um, so they might have been holding it to the uh, till the um, till the uh, swing shift got on and let them deal with it. So because that, you know, you know, never know how long a call like that's going to last. So they try to get people off on time. So like I said, I don't know how long the call had been holding. This became one of the many big questions asked at the trial. And of all the witnesses brought forward and questioned, including Rick, it was clear which one's testimony was the most incendiary. The only survivor of the incident, Earl Willis, was called for several days to present not only his account of the incident, but the events leading up to it, all while battling stage four cancer. Earl has since passed, but his wife Renee met with me at a Starbucks in Sacramento on a rainy Monday afternoon last December. She looks younger than her years and wore cat's eye glasses and her hair tucked into a purple beanie. We sat in a corner of the coffee shop as far away from the speakers blasting holiday music as possible, where she told me about the kind of man that Earl was. I'd contacted the family of the other victims, hoping to learn more about who Jean, Tom, and Bill were, but most were understandably reluctant to revisit such a painful moment in their lives, now more than 20 years later. Renee is a school teacher in Sacramento. She has a soft voice and a warm presence. Throughout our chat, she would giggle over certain fond memories she had of her husband, Earl. Together, they had two sons, one who was 29 and another who was 34. My name is Renee Roberts. I am the widow of Earl Willis. So, can you tell me a little bit about how you and Earl first met? My cousin was dating this lady and they had a baby together. This lady was Earl's play sister. And so when she had the baby, she wanted him to come down and see the baby. And I was always down there. And so we happened to be there at the same time. We sat up and talked and then he wanted her to see his condo up in Natomas. And she asked me, was it okay? I said, no problem. I was on vacation at that time. And while at his condo, again, we stayed up all night talking, my aunt died. And they were going to have her funeral up in Calusa. So Earl gave me the keys to the condo and said, does it make sense for you to have to drive all the way up and then all the way back up? So rest is almost kind of history. We met end of March. We got married that August. Nineteen eighty-six. Oh, okay. Wow, that's quite a move on like what a second date to just hand <laughs> over the keys to his place. Is that yeah. the kind of the kind of person that he was? Yes. Lots of friends. Very, you know, open. Open. He coached basketball for the Rebels in Sacramento, which is an Asian league at that time. Um, yeah, he was working. At the 
port of Sacramento at that time. Oh yeah, it was quick. Yeah. So you, when did you move to Sacramento? April. We met the end of March. Oh wow. Okay. I moved in the wow. end of April. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a whirlwind romance. And all our friends thought, oh, there must be a baby involved. <laughs> no. We're just getting married. Yeah. Okay. That's really that's really lovely. Yeah. So. He was about 14 years older than me. Mm-hmm. Never been married. No kids. I never been married. No kids. So we were together until he died. Renee and Earl's wedding was as unconventional as their romance. They got married on a boat on Lake Tahoe, with the minister rowing out to them in a dinghy. Afterwards, Renee soon got a job as a substitute teacher while Earl continued his work for the State Department of Food and Agriculture at the Port of Sacramento. He liked his job and had lots of friends. When the couple wasn't working, they often went to concerts, blues and jazz mostly. But Earl also often included Renee in his work, which initially began in inspecting shipments of rice and grain that came into the port. He had close friends he met there. He enjoyed it. I remember... One time, there was a ship docked in the San Francisco Bay, and he had to go inspect something, and he took me with him. That was a whole new experience, climbing up a rope, out, I mean, a ladder off the side of the ship, going up beyond my thoughts that I'd ever be doing, and then getting to hang out with the captain. But he took me on some ride-alongs every now and then. So ride-alongs just on ships? (laughs) (laughs) Not just on ships. We would go up near Williams, not exactly at five, um, and there would be grain storage places that he'd have to go inspect. Okay. And then when he moved from that into the other job, he became a food meat and food inspector. There were definite perks to the job. It's like funny, like he would let us know what restaurants not to go to. Oh yeah, okay. Because <laughs> they weren't exactly clean. Uh-huh. Um, or like we traveled every um, summer. He would take his vacation a month off. Mm-hmm. I'm off in the summer. The boys were off in the summer. So we would just travel the USA always headed to Shreveport to see his family and San Antonio to see my family. But we would go to restaurants and I'm like, how are you going in there? He said, it's fine. I always check out the kitchen first and I tell them what I do for a living and then it's okay to order and eat from there. So did he, like, go in and flash a badge? or No. <laughs> no? Just strike up conversation and go from there. Wow, okay. That's really that's really cool. So you had the inside scoop. Mm-hmm. All right, so do you have any recommendations for <laughs> Bay Area restaurants? <laughs> Not somebody's linguisa factory. <laughs> well. <laughs> Even though the couple lived in Sacramento... Earl's food inspector route, as Renee called it, was in the Bay Area. He had a regular cluster of restaurants, grocery stores, places that butchered and sold meat that he would inspect. He stayed with Renee's mother in Hayward during his inspection cycles. Again, it was unconventional, 
but it worked for them. Sometimes he'd be gone Monday to Friday, or sometimes he'd come back midweek and then head out again. It was a crazy schedule, but he loved his job, and his regulars loved him. When he died, his funeral was catered by one of his old inspection sites, Freedom Meats, a butcher shop that's been operating in Freedom, California, since 1970. He was an, a highly respected inspector. Yeah. And he would even take things on his own, like they needed to have um, some kind of inspection book that they're supposed to have, manual. Well, he put it together for, like, freedom. And then that was shared with some other people, um, with his permission. But, yeah, just went over and beyond. Okay. So when you say you put together, like, a... A different manual? Um, it was a special, I, I think it was an inspection or training manual um, for workers mm-hmm. in the industry. Okay. Not like on his behalf, but on the actual workers at these different places. Oh, so to help them learn how to get into compliance or... Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. So did you see that there was a need for that based on... It was actually a requirement but many people didn't know where to start. Earl had no pre-existing relationship with Santos Linguisa or Stuart Alexander. He was called in to help out on the case by his old colleague and friend, Bill Shalene. He wasn't even supposed to be working on June 21st. My niece was graduating from elementary school in Hayward, mm-hmm. and my mom and I were going to go, and Earl took off that day to stay with the boys. Okay. And then he came to me and he said... Bill needs me to do him a favor. Can you come back right after the graduation? I said yes, because Bill's been to our house. He was cool. Um, (laughs) And if he was asking, it had to be important. Knowing that he was off that day. Earl didn't know ahead of time fully what the scope of the situation was. When he explained the situation, you didn't have any... You weren't worried or anything like that? Or did he even know what the situation was? He just knew they were going to, the feds needed state inspectors there to issue a citation of noncompliance or something like that. Because that person was making linguisa and other things in the like his grandparents did, mm. and the uh, um, specifications have improved through the years where they needed to have things cooked at a certain way or made a certain way. Yeah. Okay. And why why did you need two state inspectors for that? Because I know, you know... There was two feds, so I guess they, they just wanted to have... Because Bill was supposed to go. Yeah. And he asked Earl to go along, probably just for company or the fact that it was going to be a big deal. Okay. Issuing the citation because they needed to have state people there, and the feds were getting him for going across lines, state lines, selling products. Okay. So Earl had no idea what he was getting himself into? Nope. Okay. When did you first hear that something had gone wrong? Earl left a voicemail message on the home answer machine that 
there was a sticky situation. I think one of them were shot because they sequestered him away. He had to do uh, in the field identification of the man. And so he's put in a different room. So when I called back, it just went to voicemail. I called his pager, because they had pagers back then. <laughs> so explain that to your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> what a pager is. Yes. How does it work? <laughs> and, and it's not related to anything illegal. It's yeah. what they had. Um, and he didn't answer it. He didn't respond. And I'm pacing the floor like, you can't just give me a little bit of information hang up on me. Mm-hmm. I need more. And so I kept calling and calling. And then the San Leandro Police Department called me. Really? Okay. And said that there had been a situation. Three people were deceased, but Earl doesn't know it yet. They needed to keep interviewing him before. So they told you before they told him. Mm-hmm. That must have been really uncomfortable. Uncomfortable because I still couldn't talk to Earl. And then finally they let him talk to me. The governor arranged CHP to bring him home. And I learned that a CHP has its boundaries because in Emeryville they had to switch to a different car to bring him home. Really? Okay. They sent a chaplain to our home. Um, hours later, this is before Earl got home, his boss had called and asked me did I had I heard anything. Mm-hmm. And I said, you mean like blah, 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 blah. He said, oh, you already know. So his boss knew too before he did. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. And according to Earl and a few other people, his boss handled the whole thing horribly and then tried to make himself look innocent in the situation. There were some things that had happened and weren't supposed to happen. I don't know the details, I just know he did things wrong. Okay, so his boss was worried that he'd be implicated. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not a not a great position to put Earl in. Nope. And then they had us go to family counseling. Mm-hmm. Earl went once. I think he took a total of like two weeks, right? I don't think it was a whole two weeks. It was less than that. In, the, in his testimony, he said he took two weeks off. Was it that long? It might not have been. Maybe officially that was what it was. Yeah, because he just sat by the pool and did things around the house because we were adding on a room Mm -hmm. in our home for my mom's brother and sister could move in with us from Texas. And so the boys got this junior master suite upstairs for themselves. Um, So we're still picking out carpet and getting stuff together. And on one particular day, he was babysitting a friend's little girl. Been bouncing on the bed and stuff. And our youngest 
was supposed to get out of school at a certain time. And my mom called both of us to say, do you guys have him? And we're like, no, why? Well, he's not here. Which panicked us deeply mm -hmm. because that person had put out a hit on her. Yeah. And so when you hear your child's not there, it, it, all kinds of things go through your head. There were rumors while Stewart was in jail, he had a hit put out on Earl, the main witness to the shooting. It put Earl and his family, already grappling with the aftermath of what happened, even more on edge. Her son was found eventually, a bit turned around trying to find the pickup and drop-off zone at his new school's campus. But the stress was just beginning. So, he is considered the fourth victim because he was diagnosed with cancer a year after that. Yeah. He had some survivor's guilt because if it hadn't have been for Jean saying, Earl, can you go get the camera from Tom who's waiting for the police to show up? And Earl walks out there and says, hey, Jean wants the camera. Can I have it? And Tom says, I'll, you just stay here and wait for the police. I'll go in. So as soon as that last cost customer walked out, everything happened. And if, have you seen the videotapes? I've seen parts of it. So you can see in the videotape that man goes, oh, a, a little look or something that, oh yeah, there's a fourth one. Mm -hmm. And his gun jammed, which was a good thing. Yeah. Yep. So angels were watching over him, but then to say that is that angels weren't watching over anybody else. So. It just wasn't his time. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he was at least able to talk to you a little bit about it. Did it, did he seem like he was able to process it a bit by the time the trial started? Yes, but it's still, the trial didn't start till after he was diagnosed. Earl was on the stand for several days, all the while dealing with colon cancer. Renee paid close attention to the proceedings and learned as much as she could from the prosecuting attorneys. So, anything stick out that you wanted to know about? Well, I mean, to hear the backstory about things that man had done before, um, his threats that were ignored by his friends about putting them in a meat grinder and nobody would ever find them again. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I, I wanted to know what made this person snap. Yeah. A premeditated snap, but a snap. Yeah. And Earl didn't get to hear about any of that? Not until after he testified. Okay. Was he Was he surprised? Was he shocked? Well, that's not something you hear about every day. So it is shocking mm -hmm. to hear and know that 
you have friends. And now it's a different climate. Nowadays, I think that if somebody had said that, a friend would say, hey, hold up, wait a minute. When the verdict came in, Earl was asked if he wanted to be present for it. He said no, but someone in the courtroom called them and let them listen in. And Earl was ultimately relieved that the whole thing was over. He was able to return his focus to the things that were important to him. He was fighting cancer, and I think that was his number one goal. He wanted to see our oldest graduate from high school, which he did. He wanted to see me graduate with my doctorate, which he did. So his headspace went someplace else. And those are the things that kept him strong to keep fighting it all. The two used to take an annual road trip every summer to see family in Louisiana, which they loved. Every time, they'd always get lost, one year ending up in Washington, D.C. That last summer, they flew instead. They said goodbyes to his family. Earl passed away in hospice in 2008 at the age of 60. The funeral was packed with people, friends who knew Earl from before and during his time working with the state. I can tell one thing I disliked at his service. The state gave him accommodations for his bravery at his funeral. The state gave him accommodations for bravery? Mm-hmm. And okay. they gave him his retirement clock. They were things that should have happened. Already. Right. While he was alive. That's, yeah, that is strange. So, that was offensive. Um, and insensitive. Um, but other than that, the service went smoothly. Um, he was cremated. And some of his ashes... Like I sprinkled on the track back at Shreveport. Um, just places that we like to go. Like he loved the cliff house and being able to look out at the beach right there. So some were sprinkled there. I mean, in the country, he was born on a plantation, but not a plantation that was being run by anybody at that time. Okay, that's... I need to, you know, not the slavery kind. Um, and so I sprinkled some there. I just made sure part of him stayed in Louisiana. Since then, Renee has traveled all over the world, carrying a little bit of Earl's memory with her each trip. Despite surgery to remove a brain tumor a couple of years ago, she's still going strong. And... Once the pandemic ends, she plans on hitting the road again, still with Earl at her side. Next time on The Sausage King. Though he gave himself up in a matter of minutes, Stewart's trial would not be nearly as smooth. What at first appeared as an open and shut case quickly got out of hand, as Stewart's defense attorney gained a reputation for doggedly defending his client. The 
defense attorney was an obstructionist. In the next episode, we will dive into the trial itself, hear from the lawyers on both sides, and understand a bit more about the possible undiagnosed mental health issues Stewart may have been suffering from. He did, in fact, uh, have lingering physical permanent brain injury, uh, traumatic brain injury. But for the prosecution, the explanation was far simpler. I don't know if spoiled brat is the right word, but he just, that's my impression of him. He was sort of a bully. The Sausage King is researched, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Matt Pittman, Don Bastida, and Eric Brooks are our producers. With production, sound design, and editing by Matt Pittman. Cover art created by Dre Irabaran. Social media by Greg Wong. Jennifer Selig is brand manager for KCBS Radio. The Sausage King is a production of Odyssey. Listen and subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular-season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.